Well, good morning. I'm Linda, if I have not met you before. And uh, it's my pleasure to be up here this morning. I admit I'm a little bit nervous, but um, it is such an honor, uh, very solemn on honor to be before you sharing the word of God with you this morning. Before we start, I would love to just take a minute to just pray. Father, we just come before you this morning, and I just ask, Lord, that you would empower me with your words. Direct me by your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to just do what you have asked me to do and step out of the way. Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would take over, that you would touch hearts and minds the way that you want to touch them this morning. So I bring this all before you, and I just pray that in Jesus' name. Well, good morning. Um, we have been going through the, a series on Philippians, as you probably know. For me, I felt it would be helpful to make a summary of the book, and I hope this might be helpful for you as well. So here's what I came up with. And Lauren, if you could put that up on the screen. I say that Paul's emphasis throughout the book of Philippians is to encourage and remind his friends of his love for them because they have been partners with him in the gospel. He exhorts them to continue and to grow in loving each other with forbearance and humility. And he instructs them that together, as they keep their eyes and hearts focused on Christ, they are to find joy, courage, and peace in the midst of opposition. Well, Paul has now come to the point of wrapping up his letter. In chapter 4, 1 through 7, Jace taught on this last week that he has just exhorted them once again to find joy in following the Lord and keeping him as their focus. Rather than being uptight about present circumstances, he instructs them to devote their hearts and minds to seeking and trusting Jesus, to living out a peaceful life that gently forbears with the humanness of others in the body. And this comes with the promise of God's peace, his peace that is beyond a mere human understanding. So on the heels of this, Paul does an interesting thing in verses 8 and 9, which is today's text. He uses language that reflects the Greco-Roman or Hellenistic culture. Knowing his audience is very familiar with this type of thought, he capitalizes on it. But I think he also extends an arm of embracing love when he does this, a gesture of respect for them. In a sense, he becomes all things to all people and speaks with love in a context that they would understand. On the back of his exhortation to worship and be devoted in their inner beings to the Lord, as he did in verses 2 through 7, he now directs them in ethics, how they are to live it. The Hellenistic culture valued moral thought and wisdom, although pagan. What Paul does is use the structure and language they're familiar with, Greco-Roman moralism, yet he turns it to Christ. Rather than self-sufficiency, he transforms it to Christ-sufficiency. It is the call to wisdom, but only that which is found in Christ, 
the author of true wisdom. And from the scripture, here are our verses for today. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I will talk about each one of those virtues listed, but first, let's take a look at what he tells his readers to do with them. He says at the end of verse 8, think about such things. The Greek word is logitsumai. Did I get that right? I got it right. Here it's translated think about. It's a very intentional word. Other ways it is translated in some of Paul's letters are consider, regard, intend, expect, count on, to conclude. Oftentimes this word is used as something God does. For example, he reckons or counts us righteous in Christ. I appreciate how the Amplified Version states it. Think continually on these things. Center your mind on them and implant them in your heart. This is not like those million little fleeting thoughts that fly through our heads every day. This is purposeful thinking, careful consideration. Basically, what Paul is stressing is that we, what we put in our heads matters. It shapes who we are and how we interact with the world. It is crucial to our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ, and it is essential to our witness, informing and guiding us in our quest to shine as lights in a dark world. And as Paul stated in the book of Romans, back on that same slide, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So what are these things that we are to think and dwell on intentionally? So Paul gives us a list. First, whatever is true. For Paul and for us as followers of Jesus, it is whatever conforms to the gospel. Truth is measured and defined by God. It is whatever he says is true. In our present day and culture, you probably know there is a war on truth. We can't all have our own version of truth because truth by its very nature is exclusive. It is not your truth or my truth. Whatever is true is what God says is true. So Jesus says in John 8, if you hold to my teaching, in other words, if you obey my teaching, if you observe my teaching, then you are truly my disciples. Then, after you obey, you will know the truth. And by the way, as you obey and as you know the truth, it will set you free. The next in John 17 is high priestly prayer to the Father. He says, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Only God's word is completely reliable is true. Everything in it is true. 
And we will grow only when we are saturated by his word. The next one, of course, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whatever Jesus did, whatever he said, and whatever he asked us to do is true. Jesus modeled truth. He spoke it, he lived it, and he graced people with it. So how in particular do we show that we are thinking what is true? Well, we exhibit true thinking by, first of all, what we think about God. And again, we must regularly be in God's word, chewing on it, to be anchored to the truth about who he is and what his character is. The next, we exhibit true thinking by what we think about ourselves. Now, ladies, as an aside, we tend to be really terrible about thinking true things about ourselves. We tend to uh, believe lies, either that the culture says, what other people say, what we think other people are thinking of us, or old tapes that are playing in our heads. And I know guys can get stuck in that too, but I know we women in particular can have a hard time with that. But he tells us here, think on what is true. And I say, let's think about what is true about ourselves. What does God say about us? Remember that what God says is true. And what God says about me is true. What God says about me is true. Say that with me. (laughs) What God says about me is true. Take that to heart. And also, the third thing is what we think about the world around us. How is truth manifest and made apparent in the world around us? What must we be aware of and reject as untruth? The next thing that Paul lists is whatever is noble or whatever is honorable or worthy of respect. In Proverbs 8, 6, wisdom calls out and says, Listen, for I have worthy things to say. I open my lips and speak what is right. So something that is honorable and noble is something that is good and right. From Vine's Bible Dictionary, it states, The word points to seriousness of purpose and to self-respect and conduct. I think of nobility as a willingness to step out of what is comfortable to do what is right. Think about people who set an example of nobility. I love movies that have noble characters in them, and one of my favorite movies is Les Mis, Les Miserables. My favorite one is the one with Liam Neeson in it. If you don't know the story, uh, the main character in it is someone named Jean Valjean. He has become a hardened uh, criminal. He has been in a very intense, hard labor camp for several years, and I would say unjustly as well. But he's become very bitter and angry. He's finally out on parole, and as he's out, he needs to spend, he needs uh, somewhere to spend the night. So a priest and his wife take him in for the night. Well, in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean goes out and steals their silverware. He even knocks out the priest when he comes out because he hears sound in the house. And he goes on the run with his bag of silverware. Well, the police catch up with him. They find him with a bag of silver, they apprehend him, and they bring him back to the priest for 
a confirming accusation. The priest looks at him and says, I am very angry with you, Jean Valjean. Why did you not take the candlesticks as well? That was very foolish of you. What? <laughs> Do you mean that this man was telling us the truth? You really gave him the silverware? Yes, release this man. Jean Valjean asks him, why are you doing this? To which the priest says, don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you are no longer, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, it's very interesting, with this silver, I have bought your soul. You no longer belong to evil. I have ransomed you from hatred and evil, and now I give you back to God. And it's very interesting. It's a wonderful scene of redemption. And what happens is that Jean Valjean becomes a very noble character. He becomes a man of prominence, even the mayor of a city. And everything he does in his life from this point on is noble and with honor it's serving others selflessly. He risks his reputation. He risks his life even as he's still being hunted by Inspector Javert. But he's very noble. It's a story of how redemption brings true nobility. It's a wonderful movie. If you have not seen it, I highly recommend it. But there's other movies with noble characters. The story of William Wilberforce and his struggle to bring an end to slavery in England. Amazing Grace. Another one, if you have not seen, wonderful story. The story of Abraham Lincoln told in Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. Another story of nobility. Each one of these characters was willing to step beyond what was comfortable. They risked their reputations, their money, their time, their health, even their very lives to do what God had put into their hearts. It's so incredibly uplifting to see and be inspired by others who righteously act for the good of others. And may I say that the heart of God and Jesus Christ are always reflected. So who in your lives lives in such a way exemplifying God's truth and grace. Think about what you admire. Seek to be around them. But then I also ask, and I ask myself as well, are there ways in which God is asking you to be noble, to go beyond what is comfortable, to do what is right? And then Paul says, think about what is right, whatever is right or just. This is similar to what is true. It's defined by God. It's exemplified by his character. It encompasses all that is right and good. Gordon Fee, who wrote a wonderful commentary, and I think Jace has been using that as well. It's a wonderful commentary on the book. He says, even though this is one of the cardinal virtues of Greek antiquity, in Paul, it carries the further sense of righteousness so that it is not defined by merely human understanding of what is right or just, but by God and his relationship with his people. 
As you remember in the story of Mary being found with child before she was married to Joseph, it says that Joseph was a just or righteous man. He wanted to honor God by living according to his law, but he also loved Mary and refused to subject her to public humiliation. He chose instead to divorce her quietly. Of course, God intervened in a dream to let him know that it was his doing that Mary was expecting a child. The point being that Joseph, Joseph's heart was first and foremost to honor God in truth. And he sought to live that out in love and grace. He was righteous before God. So whatever is right. <clears throat> he then says, whatever is pure. This word is translated in King James as clear, chaste, pure. Those words make me think of the purity of something like water. We don't want to put contaminated water in our bodies. Even if water is 99% pure, but 1% deadly bacteria, we will not fare so well to drink it. And I think it's the same with our thoughts. We need to strive to think on things that will build our minds and hearts toward godliness. That is so hard in our culture these days when we're inundated with ideas and images that are far from God's ideal. So take movies again. <laughs> a movie can be 95% A-OK, -okay, but then there's that 5% of sex scenes that really nobody should watch. Or the kids' movie that's pretty cute overall. It really has a good message underneath everything, right? But there's that subtle insertion and normalization of occult practices, idolatry, violence, rebellion, sexual practices, and other things that lead away from God. <clears throat> so consider, think about, are we being careful to build godly purity into our lives and those around us? With God's purity, let's just be careful. Let's consider. So Paul, as he is heartbroken over the Corinthian church, says, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So whatever is pure, think on those things. Next, he says, whatever is lovely. This word actually has less to do with moralism and more to do with what we find lovely in the world. What do we admire and appreciate? Good music, a great meal, a lovely day in the mountains or the beach. Maybe it's someone's ability to make a beautiful piece of art. Kara Wixell, I love everything you do. It's beautiful. There is so much in this world that is lovely. God has stamped his image and his love all over creation and in people. My husband Jeff and I just returned from our fourth annual road trip all over the United States. Check out our Yakima. Don't get sticker envy. We are always awed by so much that is incredible. If you're friends with me or with Jeff on Facebook, you've seen some of that. Mountains, 
rainstorms, sunsets, forests, water, as well as artwork, architecture, good food, and loved people. These things and these people are all things that enrich, enrich our lives. I admit we're very blessed to be able to do this every year, but wherever you are, take time to ponder and pursue those things that are lovely and that uplift your soul, make you thankful to God. So whatever is lovely. Next, he says, whatever is admirable or of good report. This is similar to the word lovely. It's not a moral directive, but instead an encouragement to think on those things and those people with good standing. I'm thinking of what it says in Luke 2. After Jesus has been hanging out in the temple for days unbeknownst to his parents, when they find him finally and they question him, he says, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? I had to be in his house. Of course, they didn't understand. But nevertheless, he was obedient to them and went back down to Nazareth with them. Verse 2 says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Gordon Fee again. He says, This represents the kind of conduct that is worth considering because it is well spoken of by people in general. Peter writes in his first letter, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 1 Peter 2.12. So again, whatever is admirable or of good report. Paul finishes this section by again emphasizing, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. This implies that he's not given an exhaustive list, but rather representative. Here again, he borrows language of the Greek moralists. The word excellent is the primary word, Greek word for virtue and moral excellence. But rather, um, uh, is the, <laughs> but rather than general human-centered virtue, it is instead that which is based on God's truth and character. The word praiseworthy connotes conduct in keeping with God's own righteousness. And again, Gordon Fee says, all that is good around us based upon God's righteousness. Did I, do I have another one? Hmm. Oh, well. But wait, there is more. In another move of friendship, Paul invites them, even exhorts them to imitate him. In verse 9, he's not being presumptuous. He's calling them higher. As a good instructor with the students, he says, follow my example and put into practice what I have been sharing with you, not only my instruction, but my very life. As I follow Christ, follow me. He finishes all with the promise that as they put these things into practice, the God of peace will be with them. He had just said something like that in verse 7, and the peace of God will be with you. And now he says, the God of peace will be with you as you follow these things. A final thought on this. First of all, I want to read a, a lengthy, sorry, it's rather lengthy, a quote from Gordon Fee again that I think wraps it up well. He says, if our inter interpretation is correct, these things happen simultaneously 
in these concluding and summarizing exhortations that they embrace what is good wherever they find it, including the culture with which they are most intimately familiar, but that they do so in a discriminating way, the key to which is the gospel that Paul had long ago shared with them and lived before them about a crucified Messiah whose death on a cross served both to redeem them and to reveal the character of God into which they are continually being transformed. It is hard to imagine a more relevant word in our postmodern, media-saturated world where truth is relative and morality is up for grabs. The most common response to such a culture is not discrimination but rejection. This text suggests a better way that one approached the marketplace, the arts, the media, the university, looking for what is true and uplifting and admirable, but that one do so with a discriminating eye and heart for which the crucified one serves as a template. Indeed, if one does not consider carefully and then discriminate on the basis of the gospel, what is rejected very often are the mere trappings, the more visible expressions of the world. While its anti-gospel values, relativism, materialism, hedonism, nationalism, individualism, to name but a few, are absorbed into the believer through cultural osmosis. This text reminds us that the head counts for something after all. But it must be sanctified, a sanctified head, ready to practice the gospel it knows through what has been learned and received. So my very final thought is that I know as well as anyone that having our minds set on what is right consistently is not easy. It's very hard. But remember that this letter is set in the context of friendship. It is not a rebuke. I think he's simply saying, join me. Do as I do. Let's pursue Christ together. Let's be, let's be about knowing him, for truly Jesus is our ultimate prize. Let's do everything we, we can now to prepare for the day when we will meet him face to face and will experience him fully. And let's encourage and strengthen one another to set our minds on what will help us to know him as intimately as possible. And as Marshall would say, amen. <laughs>